Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm your host, Bonnie Davis. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our own institute faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research in this exciting field of science. Hi, so we're here in the studio today with some very special guests who are joining us from the ISS National Laboratory. And uh, I'm just going to introduce them uh, both real quick. We have Mr. Ray Lugo here, who serves as the Chief Executive Officer and Principal Investigator for the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, Inc., and uh, Manager of the International Space Station National Laboratory. Um, Lots more uh, interesting things uh, to his resume that will be posted on the website. Um, And we also have Dr. Michael Roberts, who is the Chief Scientist of the International Space Station National Laboratory and is Vice President at the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space. Uh, And again, uh, lots of interesting information about his background that we'll share on the website as well. But um, we're going to wind these gentlemen up and uh, let them talk to us uh, about what their jobs are and what the ISS National Laboratory is all about for for those who don't know. So um, let's start with you, Mr. Lugo. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for having us here. Okay. So what can I tell you? Yeah, so um, just kind of give us the, for people who maybe don't follow uh, ISS Space News, NASA News, what, what does the National Lab provide for um, our country and the American people? So um, it's the only national lab that exists off the uh, face of the planet, um, actually, I guess, of any country in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a unique capability, um, microgravity um, environment. And as you may or may not know, um, the whole physics of doing uh, science in space is much different than what we do here on the ground. So some scientists have some theories about how they can take advantage of this unique platform and we provide them an opportunity to do their science uh, on the International Space Station. Right, and so that is a good segue um, uh, for those listening that the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, Last summer, uh, it was announced that we won uh, first and second place in the NASA Vascular Tissue Challenge. Uh, And part of that uh, announcement was the possibility of being able to take uh, some of our research up on the International Space Station, uh, which is very cool. And um, I we should probably have one of those scientists in here talking with us, but we'll do a follow-up podcast with one of them. But um, and we'll we'll circle back around and talk a little bit more about that as well. But um, with um, research on the space station, can you kind of and maybe this is a question for you, Dr. Roberts? Maybe talk a little bit about what the um, the different theories are that um, Mr. Lugo referenced about how the research in uh, low orbit is different and what it can help us do. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, first, uh, 
I appreciate the opportunity to, to meet with you today. And please call me Mike. Okay. Uh, Dr. Roberts is too formal. <laughs> we call him other things. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> there are worse things to be called. Um, elaborating upon what uh, uh, Ray had, had mentioned, so um, we tend to think of microgravity environment as a domain of astronauts and, and nation states. And the creation of the National Lab on the International Space Station offers the opportunity for uh, researchers and technology developers, engineers, educators who uh, see value in leveraging space for things that may not necessarily directly align with the goals of NASA and human exploration. So you mentioned the vascular tissue challenge program. That's an example of a program that was NASA funded because it addressed some research issues of interest to NASA. But it also has the potential for uh, fundamental discovery that has real world impact here on Earth. So the International Space Station National Laboratory is about taking advantage of access to space uh, and the creation of the National Laboratory on the International Space Station to further research and technology development goals here on Earth. So Ray mentioned the, the physical changes that occur in, in that environment. So in the absence of um, the gravitational pull that all life has experienced here on Earth, when you take biology into that environment, it responds very quickly to that environment. Uh, so that lack of mechanical loading on bones and muscles has profound effects which can in some cases mimic uh, diseases and just the natural effects of aging uh, on humans here on Earth. So uh, in particular with the examples of vascular tissue challenge and a whole array of other experiments were enabling access to space to take advantage of those changes in microgravity. Uh, there are a host of material science researchers who were solely focused on the physics of it and a uh, even larger cadre now of uh, life scientists who are focused on the effects of those uh, physical differences on the outcome of biological organisms. And in some cases, uh, that research directly aligns with NASA's research goals. NASA maintains uh, active research on the International Space Station and beyond, uh, helping us to understand how humans can thrive in, in the space environment. And then what we have been able to achieve with the creation of the National Lab is opening up that, uh, that portal to other investigators who are not only interested in human physiology in that environment, but understanding human conditions here on Earth outside of space. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> no, no, that's... You didn't have to put a nickel in the I slot. I didn't. I didn't. So at any given time, like, I mean, are there just... Dozens, hundreds of hundreds. experiments that are ongoing at different yes. phases. Yes. Yeah, and is and you guys are keeping track of all that. Well, between us between, and NASA. Yeah. <laughs> we actually hope NASA's keeping good track too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we keep track of time. NASA keeps track of time with the crew rotations and, and increments. So the typical crew rotation six months. And everyone should be aware we're, we, we've done a few rotations that are a year or longer. And those are important because the voyage to Mars, which we're committed to doing eventually, is going to be much longer than the six months. It's going to take probably two, three years mm. to get a, a person there and back. So the, during those normal crew rotations, a, a single astronaut will probably touch on the order of three to 600 separate experiments in the course of six months. So the model is very different than the way we do research here on Earth. The, a lot of the payloads are automated, but many of them require the crew to uh, thaw cells from a freezer uh, to recover them in a glove box and then to inoculate them into a reactor. 
and a crew member is going to be trained to spend a few minutes with that experiment, and then they've got another time block, and they're going to move over to another experiment. So we were joking before we got on air about quantum science. So literally, <laughs> a crew member may be uh, growing stem cells, and then five minutes later, touching the cold atom laboratory and doing quantum science. So they're touching a lot of different science in, in the space of a very short amount of time. Wow. So really astronauts like they're incredible people because they <laughs> they got to be really like I'm going into space but then they really have to have a multitude of yeah, so we ability have, you know, and uh, intellect there's a lot of different kinds of astronauts you know you have pilot astronauts who are you know the traditional um, right stuff kind of astronauts but a lot of the um, the astronaut corps now are very um, well educated um, you know accomplished scientists themselves so Right. Them doing these experiments is kind of an extension of what they've done in their career. Mm -hmm. I think maybe what a lot of people might know about research in space and, and like the ISS National Laboratory it is what they've learned from the movie The Martian. <laughs> so um, I found that interesting. When that movie first came out, um, I saw some stories where you know, they went to some experts in the field and said, how much of this is really, like, could this really happen? And it, it was very surprising that quite a bit quite of it. Quite a bit of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one of my, uh, in my former job, I had a, a researcher that actually collaborated on the on the screenplay. And, um, you know, some of it not absolutely true. Um, it is the sure. movies. Yeah. yeah. But it was an entertaining movie, and it keeps people interested in STEM. And, you know, that's a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what um, can you talk about? Like, what you think are some of the most interesting um, aspects of research that are currently going on? Yes. Every time I hear that question, I'm reminded of the, the conversations I have with my two sons. Which one's the favorite? Uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> one of them is, but I will not tell that one which one it okay. is. So in the same way, I can't really speak to which experiment is my favorite of them all. But uh, we've seen a lot of very important discoveries. Uh, the International Space Station has been uh, in orbit uh, as a living and working environment for humans since 2020. So we're approaching 22 years of continuous human presence in space. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, the ISS National Laboratory as a concept was created in 2005. And CASIS, as a, as a non-government organization, was selected to manage that in 2011. So we're going on about 12 years mm -hmm. uh, of our existence managing that. So over the course of that 12 years and the five years before we, we uh, joined on uh, with NASA through a cooperative agreement, we've seen significant advances in a multitude of areas. And I think of uh, most relevance to those in your audience are going to be on the biological scientist side. So we've... Uh, partnered with the National Science Foundation and the National in Institutes of Health uh, to help them advance their research portfolios. So we are, uh, have been partnered since 2016 with the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at NIH, focused on tissue chips. Uh, the NIH has uh, joined with other federal agencies, uh, including the Department of Defense and some DARPA funding as well. Uh, to look at the use of induced pluripotent stem cells in microphysiological systems. Uh, those can be used as disease models. And the advantage of uh, potentially taking those to the space environment is that 
you can populate those engineered devices with human cells that can replicate the function and activity of human organs. So therefore you can use them as avatars to understand how effective a therapeutic agent is, or you can use them to study the response uh, of an organ to a particular set of environmental conditions in addition to that therapeutic agent. Taking those into the space environment gives you an accelerated model because uh, even though they're not whole organisms, those cellular devices experience the same reduction in, in mass and mechanical loading. So we've seen changes in cardiac cells, we've seen changes in skeletal muscle cells that mimic the effects of uh, some disease states here on Earth and aging. So a lot of that discovery has been driven by interagency partnerships uh, that were um, promulgated by the creation of the ISS National Lab, so we take a, a, a little bit of, of pride and honor in having uh, worked with those teams. It all gets down to what the researchers are seeking to do and, and uh, move forward with that. We've also seen significant advances in advanced materials research and uh, diagnostic devices, so um, there's been a significant movement towards um, devices that are able to deliver therapeutics remotely so that you don't have to go into a doctor's office mm -hmm. to have a, a therapeutic agent delivered. And a lot of those require advances in um, microfluidics and nanofluidics and ways to control uh, and mediate delivery of uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient. So in the absence of gravity, it makes your math a little bit easier. You don't have to worry about settling and other things that happen as a, as a part of gravity. Mm -hmm. So. We've seen investigators who have taken um, theory-driven experiments where they were simply trying to validate a, a model of uh, particle flow in a, in a very small droplet all the way through to developing a medical device which they then used in a rodent model on space for delivery of a therapeutic agent. So that's been exciting. Uh, and that happened relatively quickly. It was over the course of about six years four separate uh, experiments. So it's still expensive and difficult, um, far more so than it is using a laboratory here on the ground. But we've seen significant advances in uh, technologies for getting payloads to orbit uh, and the ability of the crew to execute those payloads through uh, increased training and, and uh, better equipment on space. So we're seeing the pace of discovery, especially on the biomedical side, increase a lot. That's, mm -hmm. been, that's been very hard. Right. That is very cool. And um, we'll circle back around to the, <laughs> the vascular tissue challenge at this point. So um, I think one thing that was so interesting about that is because um, NASA put the challenge out like five, six years ago. And I rem I've been here since 2016. And I, I remembered when I first got here, I remembered someone referencing it. But then, I, you know. I didn't hear anything else about it. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, um, NASA's getting ready to announce this and we've got to do all this stuff and it's really cool. And I was like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? <laughs> it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere, but of course it didn't. Um, and uh, I, it was just really uh, exciting to, to be here but not really know about it and see it unfold like the rest of uh, the world did when the announcement was made. Um, but it's very cool that we uh, we came up with two different designs mm -hmm. using bioprinting yep. um, and and got the the 
what do we call them, the specimens, what, you know, the products to actually survive in the yeah, lab days, to, right. to meet the challenge. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't, I apologize that I don't know the specifics, but are, are both of those going on to the station or just the one that was no, both. first, both are going? Yeah, I thought They're, so. Um, we sponsor one and well, we're, we're sponsoring both of them. Uh, ISS National Lab is a sponsor for both of those. One of them, we're, uh, we, put, we set aside dollars mm -hmm. to provide. Uh, one of the things that's different about doing a research and technology development project in the space environment is the principal investigator or their students don't get to be hands-on in the lab with right. it. So it essentially has to go into a box that can survive a rocket ride. And then the handling <laughs> of an astronaut who is extremely motivated and talented talented but maybe a fighter pilot by training rather than a, a medical technician. So um, there, there's a cost to, to getting the experiment adapted to the flight environment so that it can go up there. So we covered that. And then uh, one of the interesting uh, spin-off innovations from this was the Methuselah Foundation right. uh, philanthropic organization was so intrigued by the technology uh, offered by the runner-up team uh, mm -hmm. here at W Farm that they offered them uh, funding to cover the cost of that integration. So that coupled with the funding of NASA and the ISS National Lab sponsorship will enable both of those experiments to go to space very soon. So we're excited yeah, about that. That's gonna be uh, interesting to see um, how it how it plays out. Very exciting. Uh, I'm sure it's gonna play out well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's gonna be challenging. I mean, you're trying to, um, the technology demonstration that was required to win the challenge, the, the vascular tissue challenge is part of the Centennial Challenges program uh, sponsored by the NASA Space Technology Mission Directorate. So um, in the acronym soup world that is NASA, it's STMD. And STMD focuses their portfolio on technology development, uh, primarily to further human exploration and propulsion systems and life support systems, thing like, things like that. NASA kind of stepped out of its swim lane a little bit. Mm -hmm. Stepped out is probably wrong. They swam across swim the out. road uh, <laughs> to the other swim lane. And they were interested in looking at a biological approach rather than uh, a mechanical engineering approach, which was novel uh, for them at the time. And that led to the vascular tissue challenge. We joined with the Methuselah Foundation, uh, who was uh, uh, involved with NASA to help promote and, and run the <coughs> challenge itself because we saw... Um, the need for this technology back here on Earth, not just to address NASA's goals, but being able to maintain uh, thick tissues is important for us to get over one of several hurdles that face us on the biomanufacturing side of mm -hmm. printing organs. So we were happy to partner with Methuselah uh, Foundation and NASA to see that go forward. And uh, the challenge itself was ground-based and very, uh, not only was the uh, technology challenging, uh, it happened, uh, co-occurred with the pandemic event. Right. So people were locked out of their laboratories, uh, supply lines were disrupted, it was extremely difficult for the investigators to uh, maintain cell cultures, to get into their facilities, to order reagents and keep things going. And that's why it kind of went radio silent for a while, it took a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, um, we had multiple teams who stayed uh, throughout the entire challenge. Several of them were successful in meeting some of the milestones, but the two teams here at W Farm were the ones who were able to uh, demonstrate the most proficiency in meeting all the, the milestones there. It was another lesson learned from that was um, 
the original design of the challenge was to have the judging uh, judging team members visit each of the facilities and do mm -hmm. interviews with them. It was unable, we were unable to do that. People couldn't right. travel right. Uh, during the, the heart of the, the COVID outbreak. So we started doing it remotely. So um, in addition to now being trained as a, a biomedical scientist, we have several very accomplished videographers here at W Farm. Yeah. Uh, I can attest to that, having seen their videos. They were doing science live. In I don't know, color. it was cool. It yeah. was I was, I was, a couple days, I was filming Kelsey and Young Wook. <laughs> I was filming them as they were filming what they were doing. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, because they, did, you have they to, did a great job. You have to stay in the moment and focused on your science. We had a, one of the teams was working with a signal transduction device, which, uh, and it was a typical laboratory setup. It looked like it had bailing wire and other things set up on it. And um, the poor uh, scientist who was running it bumped his electrode twice. It was like $6,000 worth of equipment, and he had to, and their glass capillaries. And oh, no. Things. So we had stuff like that. It was just natural stuff that happened in the laboratory. But um, we have to commend the teams for uh, persevering through that, uh, being able to demonstrate live, real time, on camera, uh, what they were doing, uh, sharing their data, uh, getting their reports to the NASA team. So not only was the advancement in technology exciting and it's going to be just as challenging and even more exciting to take it to space we learned a lot about you know new approaches to science and the virtual world and, and right. aspects of it you never would have thought uh, were appropriate before so. right um and i think uh one thing that i think is interesting is um w firm it feels like we're putting a lot of pieces of a puzzle together with the vascular tissue challenge and then we have dr chris parada who has research based in microgravity and trying to figure out a way to help protect space travelers from the effects of gravity. Um, I think that that just really is very, very interesting. Um, and it reminds me of the, um, the Mark Kelly, the two, the identical twin uh, Mark astronaut, Mark, I couldn't remember the other one's name because Mark is the one that became the senator. Um, but how interesting that whole year, that was a year long uh, experiment. So I've always been curious, how, do, you, do you know, like, how did they decide which one was going and which one was staying? Did someone flip a coin? Correctly, no. Um, <laughs> if I recall, recall correctly, I think Scott had already married Gabby Giffords at that point in time. So he was not in the oh, active. Mark, yeah. Mark, Mark yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Mark had already left. Yeah. Okay. He had already. Yeah, okay. So exactly. he wasn't active. So yeah, that made it. An yeah, I remember. Once an astronaut, always an astronaut. Right. So they keep their picture on the. But he wasn't active. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what a what a great way to be able to. Well, uh, actually, he sold it that way because <laughs> he wanted to do. It was quite a competition internal to NASA uh -huh. to take that first one-year flight. In fact, uh, I think the head of the astronaut office at the time, Peggy Whitson, she wanted to do it, but he made this compelling case that, you know, he'd have his brother here on Earth and he'd be in space. And, well, sure. You know, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah where, where's your twin at? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I imagine there, the information, the the data that was able to be compiled from that whole year-long uh, experience has just been incredible. I mean, I, I, you know, I couldn't tell you that I know, but I can, you know, basically when you sign up to be an astronaut, 
you're a human health experiment for the rest of your life. Sure. You go back and, you know, they they do a full-up um, physical on you every year or so. Your pin cushion with yeah. wings. Right. So they, well, that makes you know, sense. Yeah, sure. so they have a lot of, you know, a lot of medical information about all the crew. Uh-huh. So. That's neat. Yeah. And I, I, so I've been trained as a scientist my whole life, so I, I, what I love about science is right, we ask questions like that and you wind up with more questions at the end of it. We're not engineers or medical doctors. Right. We don't have to have an answer or diagnosis at the end of it. We just have to have more questions. So a lot of what came out of that, we learned a lot, but we also have a lot more head-scratching questions about it because we had expectations about what would happen with the physiology of, the, of, of um, Scott Kelly while he was on orbit and then what would happen upon his return, and some of those things got turned on their heads. So oh, yeah, very interesting. And now, um, uh, one of the other pieces that uh, W Firm is involved in is our new collaborative um, effort with Axiom Space. Um, they're building a facility, right? Yeah, and having a presence here in uh, Winston Salem, and working with our teams and um, that that's just really cool, and yeah. uh, to think that you know we're going to have a whole new space station, uh, and it's not that far off. Um, twenty twenty four is what they're talking. Right. Yeah. So yeah, Axiom is um, you know the the person behind Axiom has been in the space business for a long time. Right. And um, you know, so I think it's a it's a good sign. Clearly, he sees um, something unique here that he wants to. And try to leverage. Mm -hmm. So, but these are exciting times. I mean, the um, Axiom just flew a private astronaut mission as right. well. Uh, so, in addition to opportunities for uh, space tourism, there are opportunities for scientists and innovators to go to space to, to do meaningful things. Other than not that tourism is not a wonderful thing, but they can also live and actually work in the space environment and. We live in a realm, I think, where all of our children and our grandchildren, some of them may be living and working in space, and it's just as routine as, you know, driving into the city to, to go to your office building one wow. day. So it's going to require more uh, infrastructure on the ground. So seeing partnerships form like this around institutes that are focused on particular research areas and then providers of services that are building those new laboratories for the space environment. Exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. My, uh, <laughs> I told my husband this morning, I was like, yeah, i got to go in a little extra early. I've got to get this podcast ready to go. He was like, well, what's it for? And I was like, oh, a couple guys from the International Space Station National Laboratory are going to be here. And he was, he just, he's like, he just gave me the look. Like, I can't believe some of the things that you get to do at your job. He is a big NASA uh, fan and supporter. He loves anything about space and the astronaut program and um, I think he was born in the wrong time and uh, probably should have pursued um, uh, a career uh, in that field somehow, mm -hmm. some way. Um, so the idea to think that... It's probably not too late. <laughs> uh, I think he probably thinks it's too I've late. Ray, Ray's been around NASA and with NASA a lot longer than I have, but mm -hmm. I, I would say uh, I would have never expected there to be rockets not only launching from, but actually landing at the Space right. Center. Right, that's and been... It's, it's routine now. Yeah, it's just that's just the way perfect. it's going now, yeah. So since you mentioned that Ray's been in uh, around the program a lot longer, can you 
can you tell us a little bit about your background and um, wow. Like, so I um, is this what you meant to do, sort of, or did you start off so doing something I mean, entirely I mean, different? I would share with you is everybody should have a plan because uh, if you don't have a plan, you don't have anything. Right. But um, to say I ever in my mind dreamed of doing what I'm doing today would be, you know, be a stretch. But uh, no, I started, um, you know, out of high school with NASA in a, what they called the pre-co-op program. So okay. it was actually before I started my first um, college class. And um, I had every intention of going to law school, but I didn't. Um, and I became an engineer and I worked at the Kennedy Space Center for about 30 years. And then I uh, and managed a number of big programs there. And then I went to the Glenn Research Center in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, where um, it's not an operation center, it's a research center. So it was really kind of a shift for me because I went from operational programs to research programs and they're totally different. Uh -huh. And at Glenn we, we have um, uh, programs in both space and aviation. So a lot of um, the safety features you find on commercial aircraft today are things that were actually invented at the Glenn Research Center. Okay. So, um, but we also do space things, and one of the things we do is crew, uh, crew, you know, human health. And so, um, like the treadmill that um, the astronauts use on the ISS right. was something I was involved in. Oh, that's neat. But uh, I was actually involved in the uh, space station redesign in 1994 and spent a year in Crystal City while we got the program converted from the Space Station Freedom to the ISS, and then spent a year in Houston um, standing up the ISS program. And so I was at it, you know, working on the ISS program when it first started, and I recall that one of the uh, senior people at uh, JSC at Johnson Space Center, his name is Henry Pohl, he told us, he says, the ISS is not a science project, it's a place to do science. And that's always been something that stuck with me, is that was always the reason to build the uh, International Space Station, is to have a place off Earth so that we can, you know, learn how to live and work in space. Because eventually, I think we're going to go, you know, we're going to go back to the moon, we're going to go to Mars eventually, and maybe we'll go even beyond. And so, um, you know, we're at the early stages of understanding, you know, how that is. So it's been an interesting career. Um, clearly, um, having the opportunity uh, provided by the ISS National Lab is really important because what we get to do is we get to work with, you know, a single researcher at a small university with a couple of grad students, and we get to put work with places like WFIRM that's doing some really interesting and cool things on Earth, and you know, hopefully we can help all of those people be successful. Right. So. Wow, that's yeah, very cool. Fun. Yeah. Um, it so it sounds like um, in in some ways, you know, you might have had one plan, <clears throat> but a door opened and. Hey, somebody up there has a bigger plan than I have. Right. <laughs> so um, you know, just got to be open to kind of. Uh, right. You know, seeing, you know, it's like I had a boss that once told me, he said, there's no such thing as a bad opportunity. You know, yeah. an opportunity is what you make of it. Exactly. Right? That's good advice. And so, uh, 
you know, I always tell people, you know, you should go into a job and, you know, learn everything you can and work as hard as you can and mm -hmm. see if you can't make a difference. Right. Um, Dr. Atala uh, likes to talk about how, uh, you know, when a door can open and provide an opportunity that maybe you never considered or thought about, and that happened with him. It's one of it's my favorite story uh, about how Dr. Atala became Dr. Atala, but um, we were so close to missing out on having this world-renowned researcher. Um, so when he was uh, he was at Boston and um, he uh, his boss uh, said that you know we're starting this one-year research program and I think you would like it and you should do it and but Dr. Atala was like ready to just go be a clinician to be a surgeon and he was like no I don't think I want to do it and um, and his boss uh, who was his mentor Dr. Reddick said well why don't you just take a week to think about it? So a week later, Dr. Reddick called Dr. Atala and said, you know, did, did you think more about this one-year research program? I really think you should do it. And, and Dr. Atala was like, no, I'm, I, I'm really just focused on getting my, you know, career started as a, as a clinician. clinician, a surgeon. And uh, then Dr. Reddick said, well, okay, but, you know, is your wife home? Can I say hello? And he hands the phone to Dr. Atala's wife, and they have a little chat, and she hangs up the phone, and she says, you really ought to do this one-year research program because he knows you, and if he thinks that you should do it, you should do it. And so he thought for a minute and said, well, okay. And that's... How it happened. That's how it happened. I mean, like, it just... I that When I think about that, I'm like, oh, my gosh. If he had just you know, dug in his heels and said, no, I'm not doing the research. But it was an opportunity that presented itself, and it, you know, it set him off on a different path. On a whole different path. And he still gets to be a clinician yeah. and a surgeon. Um, exactly. Yeah, because he doesn't sleep. That's how he does it all. But anyway, um, Michael, can you um, kind of give us a little bit of uh, your background and uh, yeah, so it's not nearly as interesting as, as what I've heard. So, um, I uh, decided when I was an undergraduate, I, I did an undergraduate in a grew up in East Tennessee, did an undergraduate at a small four-year liberal arts college, and was kind of divided between med school and research. So I decided, well, let's just do MD-PhD programs. So I applied for those things, I'll do them both. And then after getting through the interviews at med school, I said, I think I really want to be a researcher. <laughs> went that direction. Uh, so I uh, did my undergrad and graduate work in microbial ecology. So uh, I think mold, spores, and fungus are the most interesting things in the world, uh, whether they infect people or not, just the ones that kind of hang out in the soil. Uh, came to uh, NASA Kennedy Space Center in 1999 after doing a couple of uh, postdoctoral research opportunities. There was a uh, group at NASA Kennedy Space Center. NASA Kennedy Space Center, is, as Ray spoke to earlier, is a launch and operations center primarily, but they do have a small research group that has focused on technologies for environmental control and life support. So um, up until now, we've typically approached space through a picnic approach. We take everything with us that we need, we eat it, and we throw it away or burn it up in the atmosphere and you go, that's not going to work uh, on the surface of the moon or it's going to be worse going to Mars. So NASA's explored different technologies for uh, recycling air and water, uh, mm -hmm. growing fresh produce in space. 
Cool. And there was a small group at Kennedy Space Center that was doing that. So it was an opportunity as a relatively young uh, researcher to join a research group which uh, was doing research for NASA, uh, also uh, Kennedy Space Center sits on a wildlife refuge, so it's a very interesting, um, dynamic, biological environment, so it was like heaven. <laughs> so I, I joined it, uh, worked for a life sciences research contractor, never worked for NASA there. Uh, and So I didn't grow up as a space geek. I always thought it was cool, but I didn't grow up wanting to be an astronaut or do that, but kind of backed into it. And then the opportunity came to uh, join the Center for Advancement of Science and Space and, and uh, this ISS National Laboratory concept and just couldn't pass it up. It was too good an opportunity to, to, to do that. And the story you shared about Dr. Attal, that reminds me just how important everybody gets here through um, the efforts of parents. And this is especially fresh in my mind. My younger son just graduated from high school this weekend, so there was all these thanks to the parents and grandparents <laughs> You're looking around and you realize just how important mentors are to you, uh, to bring you you are, and just chance. You know, you meet somebody who says, you should really go talk to this person and work in their lab for a while or go explore this. Or, right. You know, it's important. Right. So, uh, well, congratulations on uh, your son's well, not, graduation. Not yet. He needs like another five years before he gets him off. Well, the now, table. yeah, the change now is that dad's debt load has just increased. <laughs> just increased. Well, He's there the is that. I, I'm and with his you. His retirement date just moved out. Yeah, I know. I, I've got a, my youngest is in college to be a uh, elementary uh, ed school teacher. Yeah, so, that's a good thing. yeah, yeah. I, I, Commendable in this day. It's a very important job. So we got a, We got another year, but the, she's already proclaimed she's she's living at home with us for a year afterwards. She wants to. She's a little homebody girl. She wants to be right here in Winston Salem. So we'll not see. a bad place to be. No, it's right. great. Yeah. It's great. Um, well, that just kind of speaks to um, the importance of uh, STEM, STEAM education, uh, and how important the sciences are, um, and how we need to provide programming and encouragement and exposure, opportunity and exposure. Um, so, um, and we have a big we have a big STEM education program at the National Lab. I'm, I don't remember. I think this year we've reached already like eight, eight we're, million. Yeah, we're people. we're wow. north of five and yeah. probably close to eight million. Yeah. That's great because it's. Not, we have a, a mighty program, but very few staff. We have a dedicated well, staff. We got the internet. Right. Well, okay. we've also That's our secret weapon. We also have the NASA meatball and yeah. the NASA worm logo. But the internet is the secret weapon. It really is. People uh, of all ages still get excited about space and NASA and the whole thing. And, and ISS National Lab is able to leverage that. We are not NASA, but we work very closely with uh, NASA and, and their STEM and, and STEAM. Mm -hmm. partner programs. So our mighty office of uh, three STEM educators wow. uh, work very closely with NASA to get that word out there. And we are also advantaged because um, as a non-governmental organization and a not-for-profit, we're very well attuned to understanding um, workforce development because there's a huge right. shortage of workers in the aerospace industry and STEM disciplines all across the world, but it's acute here in the United States. And the founding of uh, companies like Axiom mm -hmm. and the partnerships they're forming, they're increasing demand all the time for folks who are 
they may not be scientists, they may not be engineers, but they're going to need some exposure to those disciplines. Communicators. Um, it's difficult to find people who can translate, you know, the heart of what's going on in the science and engineering communities so that they can, it can be explained. Uh, exactly. Folks here, some, some folks are concerned about why are we spending money there and, and not here, sort of thing. So we take that part of our mission very seriously. It's um, identified in the cooperative agreement that we have with NASA that we allocate our resources to STEM. Plus, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing quite as exciting as getting a room full of kids and having them ask you about how the astronauts go to the bathroom. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Let's not right. Go there. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. won't touch on that. But, um, yeah, the, um, education outreach has always been one of the main tenets of W Firm uh, and our approach to science and what we do here in um, we have a one person mighty, <laughs> yeah. per, you know, Joan Shank, who uh, works really hard to. Well, she ought to get in contact with I, our I was just thinking yeah, that, but I think um, there, there could be a, a lot of opportunity for that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there we could incorporate, um, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it wouldn't be surprising to me that if you went to an elementary school, even like a large city like this, it has a great university. Mm -hmm and the kids don't really know what's going on in space today. Right. And that's, you know, um, it's really unfortunate, right? Because, right. Um, you know, we live in a very interesting time and lots of opportunities. And, you know, I think kids um, are really our biggest hope. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, what's your number one piece of advice that you would give to a, a young person um, coming out of high school and coming out of college? So I guess, you know, um, looking back on it and, you know, hindsight being 2020, I think probably the big thing would be to be open-minded and, and allow yourself to consider all of the opportunities that are presented yourself. I think um, people self-limit themselves. So our biggest uh, thing that holds us back from doing great things is our own fears and so if uh, you know young people um, should be fearless and you know um, you know Dr. Atala is probably a good example you know is my guess is he wanted to do what he wanted to do because it was um, less fearful than the alternative sure. and so um, you know I think be open to the opportunities and be fearless. That's very uh, good advice. Yeah. I think it's hard when you're, I think when you're young, you kind of already, it, you have that about you and it's knowing when, when to act on it or follow an instinct or whatever. And then it's as we get older that we lose that, which is a, a shame. Um, but I think that's really good yeah, advice. So be, be a seven year old. <laughs> I like it. And what about you, Michael? Uh, I was going to go lower. I was going to say be a five-year-old. But, yeah, uh, curiosity has always served me well. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions, and don't be afraid to try new things. Um, mm -hmm. In my growth and development as a scientist going through graduate school and postgraduate school, you know, I found it to be true, the words of wisdom, you know, my parents had passed down about you tend to regret more in life the, the chances you don't take than the ones you do. So 
as Ray said, be open, be curious, don't be afraid to say yes to some things and try them, and work hard. Um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about the past you know, week or so with my son graduating from high school about you know, don't do the dad boomer wisdom dispensation because it's just going to shut down, it's not going to go over. But the few things I shared, one of the things I had to tell him was to slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's a generational change, I guess, mm -hmm. maybe that I'm getting old and I know he's younger, but uh, he's just doing something all the time. Right. So I don't see the time you know, where you pull back and just kind of reflect and Think. chill a little bit. Right. So yeah. that was part of my advice. Just right. I think we've raised a couple generations of young people who are just in such a hurry yeah. to get started with a career, a job, whatever, and um, I think they That's believe they believe some of the stuff they read on the right. internet and social media. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, going to college and not knowing what it is you want to do. Nobody says you have to have it figured out on day one, but there there seems to be a an attitude that you have you to have all the answers now. Exactly. But sometimes not having those answers and giving yourself that room is uh, is quite a gift as well mm -hmm. so. and listen to your spouse or your significant other because when sometimes your mentor they talks to your spouse and you get that information <laughs> the second time you just nod your head that's so. right that's right and if you don't have one of those your dog your dog <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly okay well um i think we're just going to wrap it up there though i love that that was all great good advice and uh it's been uh great talking with both of you this morning and I'm glad I got to start my day with you. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Fun. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wakehealth.edu backslash WFIRM or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.